Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Ben Sternke, and I'm here with Bishop Todd Hunter. How are you today, Todd? Hey, Ben. I'm great. Um, Today's guest, a little teaser here, is one of my go-to friends. Yeah. Like, when I need wisdom about missional Anglicanism, this guy we're about to talk to is one of my go-to buddies. All right. Well, stay tuned. It's fun for me to be here. We're going to introduce him in about... 30 seconds. So anyway, uh, but, but uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, we are continuing, uh, as Todd teased, uh, our series today on the gifts of Anglicanism for the body of Christ. Uh, over the past few decades, a lot of us have found ourselves on the Canterbury Trail, um, drawn by the Spirit into the treasures of the great tradition of the church, but at the same time, trying to steward those treasures within a rich, contextual, kingdom-centric mission um, without getting kind of mired in a stiff traditionalism that hampers a mission, a spirit-empowered mission. And so this podcast is a series of gifts that Anglicanism is uh, to the body of Christ, um, gifts we've received from this tradition and how they can be used to effectively engage the world around us. So, so far we've talked about the centrality of the Eucharist, and then we've talked about the formative power of liturgy, and today we're talking about another topic that overlaps and relates to those two, which is the Book of Common Prayer. And we have a guest with us to help uh, discuss this today, the Reverend Dr. Winfield Bevins. He serves as the director for the Asbury Church Planting Initiative. He's written several books, including uh, the one that we're going to focus on and talk about today, which is called Our Common Prayer, A Field Guide to the Book of Common Prayer. Winfield, welcome to the C4SO podcast. Hey, it's great to be here with you. Looking forward to the podcast. Yeah. Um, before we dive in, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. All, all we've got is uh, that you're the director of this uh, church planting initiative, but um, what else do we need to know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm a church planner. I've been doing, you know, engaged in church planting and mission for the last, you know, I guess close to two decades um, mm-hmm. prior to coming to Asbury. Um, had served as canon for church planning for Diocese of the Carolinas. I'm an ACNA priest. Um, as, as Bishop Todd mentioned, you know, we're, we've become good friends over the last few years. Uh, mm. A part of what I do at, at Asbury Seminary, it's a global church planning initiative. Um, mm. We've trained leaders. Just, it, It's really amazing. God's really used this to just introduce me to the global church. And so I work with a lot of different movements and global contexts. Um, I work all across the Anglican Communion uh, with different mm-hmm. provinces, uh, as well as here, obviously here in the United States as well. Uh, I love to write. I've written several books. Um, I'm also an artist and um, do iconography, and so it's just a quick snapshot. I'm a surfer too. If I had to throw oh, in a one surfer little, too. wow, yeah, we had. You know how they say, Ben? Uh, oh, sorry. Kentucky. You know how they say, Ben, there's a just a, a small line between genius and insanity? That's uh-huh. where Winfield lives. Yeah, he's right like, there in that liminal he, space. He lives in that yeah. space of a fine line between many geniuses and insanity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always, yeah, go ahead, Winfield. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I, I really see my role as I, I have a foot in academia and a foot in um, the real world. I'm a practical theologian. Mm. I write mm. 
and uh, I, I really try to write for the church um, to support yeah. the church, and that's a real passion that I have is to to kind of connect those two worlds, as, yeah. as John Wesley called knowledge and vital piety, joining the two so long disjoined, and that's oh, kind yeah. of part of a sense of calling on my life. That's great. Yeah, I uh, I always feel bad for people when they say they're surfers, but then they live in a place like Kentucky, which yeah. you know, oh, surfing's probably so not great there. That's so empathetic of you, Ben. Uh, yeah. Just Thank stick you. the knife in there, Ben. Um, <laughs> so literally, I lived on an island. Outer Banks was an island. We planted oh. a church there. We were there for t- raised our kids there, and oh, got wow. a call from Asbury as they headhunted me and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And mm-hmm. so, in my living Took room, I have surf. a. A, a, a beautiful retro longboard hanging over our mantle, and oh man, yeah. So. My longboard from Virginia Beach when we lived there was because I was overweight, still a little <laughs> overweight, but it was so long, so thick, and so wide that wow. the local Navy guys who used to surf out in Virginia Beach with me called it the USS Hunter. The USS. <laughs> <laughs> I said, hey, I need it to Speaking float me. Look at my size. You yeah. know, these 19-year-old <laughs> Navy kids are out there at their buff oh, bodies, gosh. and I'm yeah. old and fat yep. trying to longboard. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, something I've literally never done. I've never tried surfing. So that's one of, one of, one of y'all have to teach me sometime when we're all at the Let's coast together sometime. Um, well, Winfield, did you, uh, I've been asking all of our guests this question. Did you grow up in the Anglican tradition? And if not, maybe you could share with us the story of your journey into Anglicanism and yeah. what initially attracted you. No, that's great. Um, no, I did not actually. Um, I grew up in kind of, um, kind of a nominal Baptist background, you know, grandmother mm-hmm. would take me to church once a year you know, type situation and um, just really grew up in really a non-religious kind of environment. Had a, had a radical conversion experience at 19, um, sensed pretty quickly a call to ministry, um, had a Holy Spirit encounter at a retreat um, and went to Lee University. That was my trajectory. Hmm. And it was interesting at Lee, I was introduced to... Um, John Wesley, and you know, hmm. uh, through the writings of, I kind of followed Wesley back, if you will, and kind of followed his sources. And Wesley was an Anglican minister; he was an Anglican priest, and uh, kind of, kind of started studying and fell in love with the early church, and really hmm. drew from Wesley's sources. Um, and had ended up planting an independent, non-denom church. And part of my kind of spiritual journey, we were on an island and was planting churches, um, had, had launched an interdenominational network of churches, and um, had really felt something missing. You know, I hmm. kind of would have described myself as probably missional, kind of evangelical, you know, mildly charismatic. And, um, you know, I tell people I was kind of a, a, cl- a closet Anglican. You know, I stumbled across the Book of Common Prayer, which we're going to be talking about today, mm-hmm. and just fell in love with the Anglican tradition. And some of my, uh, you know, best friends from college uh, had planted a vineyard church in Atlanta. Um, uh, Chris McDaniel, Marty Reardon, we had all gone to Lee University together. Mm-hmm. And um, Marty's stepdad reached out to me and said, hey, 
you know, those guys have lost their mind. They become Anglicans down in Atlanta. <laughs> and I called, I called him up and Chris said, you got to fly down here and see what the Lord's doing. And hmm. long story short, uh, we kind of went through a two-year period of just praying and discerning. Uh, since I sensed that the Lord was calling me to become an Anglican priest, and our church hmm. just kind of went on the journey with me. And I've written hmm. about that in some of my uh, some of my books, uh, Ever Ancient, Ever New, The Lure of Liturgy for New Generation. I kind of kind of share a little bit of that story. But it was interesting. It wasn't just me. It was kind of the church that kind of made that shift um, with us. And so that's yeah, that's a quick that's snapshot of mine. There, there are obviously more details and facts yeah. and names that are anonymous. Yeah, but, yeah um, no, that's, that's really helpful. Yeah, it's, inter- it's interesting. You know, that's our topic today, the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and that, that is a common um, uh, theme in people's journeys into Anglicanism is sort of finding the Book of Common Prayer, becoming interested in it, and wanting to learn more about it. Um, so most of our listeners are probably familiar with the Book of Common Prayer, um, but maybe not everybody uses it frequently. Um, so uh, maybe just give us like a beginner's uh, overview, like what is the Book of Common Prayer? What's in it? Um, and just give us an overview of the Book of Common Prayer. Kind of treat us like uh, beginners. So if we don't know anything about it, what is it? Yeah, so what's interesting is actually one of the core courses I teach is worship, prayer, community, and the Anglican tradition at Asbury. But I'm going to, mm. you know, I could go into all those stuff, but I'm just going to yeah, just yeah. boil it down. The, one of the beauties of the English Reformation was the production of the Book of Common Prayer, if you will. And Cramner, who mm. kind of essentially acted as the editor, was the Archbishop of Canterbury kind of during the Reformation time period, kind of um, – essentially edited this book um, of, of prayers and collected prayers from the church. Um, and one of the beauties of the English Reformation is that it retained um, kind of the beauty and cadence of, of the great Catholic tradition. But in the same way that um, I think to understand the impact of the Book of Common Prayer on the English-speaking people um, – in the same way, we think of the King James Bible as like the most mm-hmm. influential kind of translation version of the Bible in the in the history of the English-speaking world. The Book of Common Prayer is second only to the King James Bible in terms of being the most quoted, widely used religious devotional book in the history of, of the English language. And mm-hmm. in the same way that um, the English Bible put the – the Bible in the vernacular of English-speaking people, the Book of Common Prayer, this was the genius of it. Imagine for the first time in your entire life, you've only gone to church and it has only been in Latin for your entire life. And all of a sudden, the liturgy, the prayers, the worship is in the common language of the people. This was absolutely Mm. revolutionary, um, what happened. And so the way I see it is even in the title, this idea of common prayer doesn't mean like that, which is just kind of common or ordinary. But, ordinary or But it's something like that mundane. brings yeah. the people of God together um, in, mm. in, in corporate prayers. Um, mm. And so that's a quick snapshot um, about yeah. the beauty, I think, and the genius of, of the Book of Common Prayer. Yeah. And so um, – 
what, what, give us an overview of like what's what's in it then. It's um, you know it's the Sunday liturgy is is part of that. Um, we've got the daily office. I mean, what other kinds of stuff do we find in the Book of Common Prayer? Yeah, so you know the Book of Common Prayer, you know, has the liturgies that we pray together. I think the the other kind of beauty of it, it is it's what we do in um, together in corporate worship, but it's also a prayer book that is used by individuals or families. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a real uniqueness to it. So you have uh, the kind of these common prayers that we pray together. You Really, it's kind of divided in several sections. You have the daily office, which can be used uh, by a church, a small group, um, by families, or by individuals. So if you're praying together or if you're praying by yourself in a prayer closet somewhere, you're always kind of joining your prayers with the church. Mm-hmm. Um you, you have the collects of the Christian year. You have the seasons of the church year that it kind of helps us immerse ourselves in. Um, I remember when I was first becoming an Anglican, that was really the daily office. But those collects were really powerful for me to kind of take those prayers that were being used each week mm-hmm. and kind of bring them into my own devotional life and help me enter into kind of this worshiping kind of rhythm of, of the church. You've, yeah. you've got the liturgies for the Eucharist, the weekly Eucharist, uh, also liturgies for holy baptism, confirmation, marriage, burial. Um, you have the ordinal for, uh, you know, it's given for the service of ordination for bishops, priests, deacons. Um, the other, I think, significant piece to the Book of Common Prayer that is really key to Anglican spirituality is is. Every book of common prayer will have the Psalter. Anglicans mm-hmm. love the Psalms, and you know it's the prayer book of Jesus. It's the prayer book of the early church, yeah. and being immersed in the Psalter and going through that um, daily, weekly, monthly uh, immerses us in that rhythm. Again, there's these rhythms that emerge. There, there's also a doctrinal piece that I think is important to mention that the you know the the different versions will have you have your earliest versions have you know a catechism, um, mm-hmm. the affirmation of the historic creeds, uh, and then you have the Anglican document um, of faith, you know, which is the thirty nine articles that kind of uh, offers a concise summary of the essentials of the Christian faith through through the lenses of the Reformation, and then finally mm-hmm. you have um, a lectionary that's included there yeah. that uh, is designed to kind of immerse the people of God in the Holy Scriptures throughout the year. Um, yeah. And I've found that the lectionary, the weekly lectionaries for our family have been a wonderful tool that we just, we study those scriptures throughout the week. Um, mm. And it's been a real gift and a blessing. Yeah. So that's a quick that's overview. Great. Maybe that's yeah, too much. That, Apologize. No, that's that fine. Was... That's good. That's good. There's a lot in there. I, I remember um, one of the things uh, that impressed me about the Book of Common Prayer was like the the ordination services are all in there. Like every everything was just sort of out out in the open. There's no like secret prayers that yeah. you learn after a certain stage. It's just like yeah, here's how we ordain bishops, and uh, here's the service for this thing. You can just see it. It's all right there. Here's all the instructions. Like everybody gets all the instructions uh, for the whole thing, the whole life of the Christian. Um, I really appreciated that when I first started reading the Book of Common Prayer. Um. You mentioned the daily office. Um, that, that's oftentimes, I think, the first thing that people start with, uh, which you know makes a lot of sense uh, because that's you know, something you can do every day. 
Um, but because there's so many options, one of the things I've commonly heard uh, is that it's intimidating mm-hmm. to use the daily office. And so they open up the Book of Common Prayer and it's like, okay, start with an opening sentence of scripture. Here's 28 options uh, for that. And then you can do this thing. Yep. And then here's a few options for that. And during this season, you can do this. And during this, you know, when, when there's a saint's day, you can do this. So how would you recommend uh, to someone who maybe would like to start using the Book of Common Prayer for daily prayer? but they don't know how to make heads or tails of how it's yeah. laid out or what all these options mean. Like, what would you recommend to them? Yeah. And, you know, a, a good starter place is, so one of the reasons I wrote our common prayer was to kind of focus on, you know, these aspects of simplifying, you know, morning and evening prayer. Mm-hmm. If you're going from the actual, you know, an actual prayer book Um, You also have what's called daily devotions for individuals and families. And I think I would probably recommend just, just, you know, newbies that like are just, honestly, it took, if I have to be honest, I call it cracking the code. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like the Da Vinci code. When I was a new, I mean, literally, I probably studied the Book of Common Prayer. Before I became an Anglican, was probably trying to immerse myself in it for 10 years, yeah. And just trying to figure it out on my own, apart from being a part of an Anglican community. And so it can yeah. be very overwhelming. I've had friends, mm. I remember Brian Zahn, um, yeah. charism- large charismatic pastor, kind of uses the Book of Common Prayer, but they have a, a big bookstore in their church. I remember him telling me a few years ago, he said, you know, we've tried to stock the Book of Common Prayer um, in our bookstore but people end up buying it and returning it because they have no idea how to use it. <laughs> and and so yeah. that is a really good question in that I think start simply with those daily devotions. It's just a really simplified version. Um, mm-hmm. And what I'm going to share will get me in trouble with some Anglicans, but the best-selling thing I've ever done is for um, um, a publisher seedbed. I created a called a field guide to daily prayer and it's a little red uh, pocket prayer book that has a cardboard Mm. cover and it's i literally just took it from the 79 book of common prayer pulled out the morning and evening prayer simplified it and threw some of my favorite prayers of the saints in there and that thing has sold tens of thousands of copies it's amazing it's their best selling it's 295 a piece church plants buy them by the dozens hand them out and I have received so many testimonies from people who have just, that has been their gateway into Anglicanism because it's been so simple. It's something that they can just simply kind of use and stick in their pocket and go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually holding one right here. I remember, I think you gave one to me when we met up a few years ago. Okay. Um, And it is, it's literally pocket sized. You just kind of throw it in your back pocket and, uh, it's an easy way to simplify it. We, fi- we have to do the same thing for our church, yeah. uh, you know, essentially. Like uh, we, we taught a class on here's how to use the Book of Common Prayer if you like. But I actually just printed some out um, for our small groups, for our table groups, our missional communities that gather. Like we'd like to do evening prayer, but we usually have this little printout that's like, here's, we've made the selections for you and here's, yeah. here's a simplified version. That seems to really help people. And so, um, but I also like your suggestion of kind of going with the, the daily devotions for, for families as well. I think that's, um, I think that's a really uh, good place to start for people. Um, 
What would you What would you say is one of the uh, most underutilized parts of the of the Book of Common Prayer? Like a treasure that's in there that maybe many people don't know about. Yeah, for like individuals or just church use yeah, in any, general. Any, anything you Anything you like. What comes to mind when I ask that question? Yeah, I think. Wow. Yeah, I think most people think of it in terms of the morning, evening prayer, the daily office. Um, I think, I think close to Cramner's heart was the Psalter that's in there. It's in there for a reason, mm-hmm. um, and it's actually designed to go through it daily. You know, on a repetition yeah. each each month, and to repeat yeah. that. For me personally, um, and it's in the back, and it gets lost. I think and people don't realize it's there, is the prayers and thanksgivings. Mm. Um, and it's a collection of prayers for, you know, special occasions. These can be prayed by yourself or with families or with yeah. small groups. Um, yeah. And for me, that has been probably, if I had to be honest, the my favorite most Again, I'm, I'm, I'm a church planner uh, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, teaching, you know, different things. And I, I just pragmatically, mm-hmm. the prayers and thanksgivings have been such a great gift because the beauty of the tradition is sometimes you don't feel like praying and sometimes you don't have the language to articulate certain things. Yeah. And these prayers help us pray with the church. There are other people mm-hmm. praying these prayers and— you know, uh, you know, I tell Methodists, you know, like, hey, some of these prayers were the exact same prayers that Wesley, John Wesley prayed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I love, uh, if I could just share a couple quotes about that. You know, C.S. Lewis sure. said it this way. He says, at its greatest, it shines, talking about the Book of Common Prayer, with a white light that hardly is surpassed outside the pages of the New Testament itself. Mm. Um John Wesley said, there's no greater liturgy in all the world, either ancient or modern, which breathes of more solid scriptural rational piety than the common prayer of the Church of England. Mm. And in these prayers, they're beautiful, they're thoughtful, there's a cadence to them, they're poetic, they're theological, they're biblical. Um, and so that's where I would just say, if, if you've got a book of common prayer and you're saying, where do I even start? You know, maybe put a tab in the daily office, but also go to the very back and mark the prayers and thanksgiving sections. There's prayers for mm-hmm. the joy of creation, prayers for uh, prayers for your enemies, um, mm-hmm. you know, prayers for you know loved ones, prayers for birthdays, um, yeah. prayers for uh, those in trouble and bereavement. Yeah. And I've found that's been one of the greatest gifts for me over the years is these prayers have given me language when I didn't have language and they've helped yeah. me pray when I didn't feel like praying. Yeah. That's great. Todd, do you have a, do you have a thought on that? Like anything that um, comes to mind for you in terms of maybe a treasure in the book of common prayer that some people don't know is there? Uh, no, I, I would have said exactly what uh, Winfield said about the prayers and thanksgivings. And I was mm-hmm. nodding my head as he was speaking because so often where I find the, the the Book of Common Prayer a great assist to my own spirituality is what Winfield said about sometimes just not having the words to pray. Yeah. And so if you think of um, of the horrible you know um, combination of, of Afghanistan, Haiti, and Lebanon, you know, just in the last news cycle, how do you pray? 
Well, you can go to the prayer book and you can actually find some springboards and you can just sit with them quietly. You can add your own words, but there are actually prayers that would help you pray when you feel overwhelmed. So that feels like a great gift to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I I found too, I appreciate you mentioning the Psalter as well. Um, Because I found that the Psalter for me in this last season, just for me personally, has worked very similarly to, to how you're talking about the being given words uh, when I don't feel like I have words um, that, that this past season, the pandemic and, you know, everything else that's gone on, there's oftentimes been just this feeling of, of grief and anger and, you know, not really knowing what to do about that. And I, I, it was, I'd read all these Psalms before, but somehow like they all felt very fresh and new, especially the imprecatory Psalms, especially all the Psalms that were complaining to God about, <laughs> you know, like, man, why are you letting my enemies do this to me? And, the, and, yeah. and here's what I'd like for you to do to my enemies. And, um, and I've, I just found it so comforting that these are words that are given to us by God to pray to him. Like given yeah. get words, it's okay to pray these things. Like it's okay to allow your anger to to go up to God in in the form of these of these words and like bring that to Him. And so I don't know. It, it just all of those the angry psalms came alive for me in the in this last season as really really helpful ways that are teaching me to pray in a new way. Yeah. So. No, I mean absolutely for me. I've lived. And the, you know, those psalms have come alive. And mm-hmm. that's what I love about the psalms is that there's this beautiful kind of honesty. And again, these psalms of lament, like the mm-hmm. psalmist is pouring his heart out before God and um, in anger sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. for me over this past year or so, has, it's been very permission giving to kind yeah. of bring these things before God and say, yes. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm angry. I'm upset. And the mm-hmm. Psalms give us language, and I think that's the other beautiful thing is sometimes our prayers, it reminds us that we, we can come before God and be honest yeah. you know, about our own yeah. brokenness and our own struggles. Yeah, it's really good. All right. Um, how about a couple questions that might, you mentioned getting in trouble um, before. <laughs> Yeah. And we like to f- we like to flirt with trouble on okay. the podcast here. I got a bishop on the call, so I can't get too bad. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You're, you're, yep. You'll be all right. Um, so uh, a couple a couple questions around that. That I'm just yep. curious about these things. So one of the tensions. This is maybe a little bit more nerdy question here. Yeah. But one of the tensions in Anglicanism is yep. how much to rely on a common text across all dioceses in a given region, right? Yeah. Um, and then how much to allow for a more kind of modular or plug and play approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how much, to, so this, this gets into how much of this needs to be like, these are all the words that we pray. All of our churches pray these exact same words, right? Yes. On one extreme. And then the other extreme is more like, um, no, the, the liturgy is a, is a um, structure, right? It's gathering, mm-hmm. it's hearing the word, it's coming to the yep. table, it's being sent. And then plug, plug prayers into that. You know that that makes sense of that structure. So there's a tension between those two things, yeah. right? Between we all pray the same words to there's room for contextualization and kind of plugging in plugging in yep. modular kind of prayers, that kind of thing, based on you know you know current events, the mm-hmm. communities you serve. I don't know. I wonder if you have any reflections on the drawbacks or benefits of either of those approaches. Yeah. So again, I'm an Anglican priest, um, and. You know, I, I also have, I love the liturgy, by the way, mm-hmm. and I've preached in cathedrals. I've preached, you know, I, 
you know, I could, I can do it all. Smells and bells. I can, mm-hmm. I, I, you want me to get happy clappy. I, you know, I have a charismatic <laughs> background. Yeah. Um, however, I also work with dozens of denominations and networks around the world. Some of the leading movements I'm working with in the U S is, 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 is Hispanic Latino movement. That's planted mm-hmm. 300 churches in the last three years. Mm-hmm. I helped found that. I was on their founding board. It was a, it was a network that was started in my office out of a prayer meeting. (laughs) And, um, so part of my scholarship currently is I'm I'm finishing a second doctorate at university of Aberdeen on what I call neo-liturgical churches. So I'm looking Hmm. at the recovery of tradition cross-denominationally, especially among multicultural churches uh, I'm working with a movement out of New York that's an Afro-Latino Pentecostal movement that is recovering sacramentality for the for um, you know leaders of color that are Pentecostal, um, mm-hmm. and this is what's fascinating. This there's a I believe there's a movement that's recovering tradition that the stereotype often is that it's kind of a white Anglo middle-class thing. It's it's actually really exciting. This is a global thing that I'm Mm. seeing. Mm. And um, with that, um, so again, I have an Anglican hat then, but then I also have a global multicultural missiological kind of hat that I wear as well. And so um, one of the things that I teach, and, you know, I kind of draw from the work of Robert Weber. Um, You know, Weber was you know, was it Wheaton, um, mm-hmm. coined the phrase ancient future. One of the things that I appreciate about what Weber did was he really advocated for the recovery of the fourfold framework of the historic ancient liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways you have this liturgical renewal movement that started in the um, 19th century in the Catholic church in Europe. That was a recovery of early church sources to bring renewal of worship in Catholicism. Well, Vatican II opens that up and um, in the 1960s, and Protestant mainline begin to experience liturgical renewal. And they start, there's prayer book revisions happening across the street. 1979 prayer book is a result of that. You have the Methodist yeah. kind of new prayer book. You have Lutheran, Presbyterians are creating new prayer books. Well, in the 70s, evangelicals start experiencing this. Um, hmm. You know, Weber hosted a thing at Wheaton. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm trying to get there quickly. That's so fine. you have this um, generation coming out of evangelicalism that are probably guys that are kind of a lot of young clergy that are coming into the ACNA are part of what I would call this. Uh, if you think of this liturgical renewal as waves, you have this mm-hmm. Catholic renewal, you have Vatican II, you have the mainline Protestants, then you have kind of older evangelicals, then you have younger evangelicals that are increasingly um, engaging in church you know, mission, uh, multicultural mission. And what's happening is this is across these streams, and it's what I call neo-liturgical. And with that, uh, one of the things that I work with is what I call liturgical enculturation, which is how do you do contextualized liturgy in a way that's faithful to the historic fourfold framework of the church's historic liturgy, but also is culturally engaging. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? 
That's great. Yeah, no, I, that, that's exciting. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm showing my cards as well. I, th- I think that's an exciting way to approach it. Um, have you, do you know the work, I was looking for it on my shelf there just a second ago, um, the Kenyan Rite? Yeah, oh yeah. That was developed? Yep. Yeah. It's a great I, example I of contextual. Yeah. yeah. So you have all of these versions. There is no, so again, kind of like the King James only argument. You know, you drive by certain churches, you see, yeah, right. if it was yeah. good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me. Well, you right. got you got these kind of, you know, kind of Anglican fundamentalists, I would maybe call them that, you know, are, you're not an Anglican if, you know, you right, don't use right. this particular, well, yeah. you know, the 1662 is really, you know, I tell people, I'll, I'll tell you my, I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table. So, you have... 1662 is kind of like the um, viewed among Anglicans as kind of the 1611 King James Bible. Like it, it has an authoritative gravitas right, to it. Yeah. It's a literal yeah. translation. Let's put it that yeah. way. It's yeah, kind of yeah, this older, yeah. you know, you look back to it when you're doing text translations of the Bible, people, they're always going to look at the King James Bible. Yeah. Then you have the 1979 BCPs viewed as kind of like the NIV. You know, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're leaning a little left with the translations, they're getting, mm-hmm. you know, loose with some of the translations. It's, it's good. Yeah. It's popular. Yeah. And then the new 2019, which I love. I've got it. I was, I was at the, uh, the Provincial Assembly when we kind of brought it out. I've got, you know, the 2019 is kind of like the ESV Bible. You know, it's kind of like a, <laughs> we're going to go back to a modern, you know, we're yeah. going to draw inspiration from the 1662. Yeah. We're going to be really kind of, uh, you know, real kind of clean, crisp, kind of a yeah. literal modern translation. That's how I kind of see the 2019. Yeah. Put the pair of humble access back in there. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's helpful. I, that's a funny analogy, but I think it holds, you know, from my understanding. Um, so here's here's the second question that might get you in trouble uh, if you're interested uh, in getting in more getting in trouble. But um, I, I you mentioned these different prayer books. What what is it that you personally like about the '79 prayer book better yep. than the 2019 and Vice versa. What do you like about 2019 better than 79? Yeah, just that's a, that's throw, throw some things on the table here. So <laughs> let me let me tie a bow on the last comment. Go ahead. Where I was trying to say with the the idea of I'm working with all of these cross denominational, interdenominational, helping. I, I feel like a lot of my work is helping evangelicals, charismatic Pentecostals recover the great tradition. Yeah. Um, I'm an Anglican. I love it. I'm bought in. I'm all in. All right. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not called to make Anglicans. I'm called to make right. disciples. Yes. And I believe that the great tradition of the church um, holds great gems and jewels and riches for all of us. Mm. And so what I'm trying to do in, in a lot of my writing, I have a new book coming out with IVP next year called Liturgy and Mission, is to really say this is the historic framework of, of the liturgy that actually inspires us toward mission, and here's how yeah. we can contextualize that. So I'm, I'm working broadly. So that, yeah. So in answer yeah. to your question, back to the the seventy nine, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, uh, I, I I actually think the seventy nine again, if I'm just you know cards on the table, you know, 
most of us that came into Anglicanism from, you know, you know, low church evangelical back cut our teeth on the 79. Um, I think the 79 has a, a, a more poetic, smooth kind of cadence to it. Um, Hmm. and it's kind of like once you get in the rhythm of, of a particular way of praying, um, In some ways, the 79 just feels more natural to me. Those words just roll off the top. And that's the beauty of liturgy is these prayers sink down deep into our souls after you Mm -hmm. pray them day in and day out, week after week. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is just in maybe a a habitual, you know, habitus of just praying those prayers, you know, for a number of years. Yeah. Um, I, I like the beauty of the 79. I think it has a, Again, it's like the it's like the NIV Bible. The NIV Bible's mm-hmm. very simple. Uh, it's at a third grade level. There's a beauty mm-hmm. and a simplicity mm-hmm. to that that's very mm-hmm. accessible. And I think that was part of the intentionality of the 79 BCP. Yeah. 2019, um, I appreciate the the attempt to recover some of the uh, again the 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 beauty of the 1662 kind of language um there's some there's some fresh new prayers that are uh, incorporated in there as a wesleyan mm-hmm. there's a john wesley's covenant <laughs> prayers in there so that's I, a good one yep. got to give yep. some props to our yep. our brothers and sisters that were on the prayer book committee for the 2019 yep. yeah uh, happy to use it i've used it um yeah. You know, wor- you know, worship in an Anglican church that uses it, and so yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I don't really have any complaints there. I, I, I think I would just say the contrast is maybe the '79, just from using it for so long, just feels a little it's more familiar. natural and a little smoother yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's again, that's you know, doesn't need to be authoritative or anything like that. I'm just uh, curious about comparing them. We've we've done. Uh, similar, we we we've integrated uh, the 2019. We use those uh, the collect cycles, you know, from that um, uh, from that book of common prayer. Um, and I I think uh, for me, one of the differences that I've noticed is I really like in the 2019. I really like the Eucharistic prayer mm. um, uh, around the table. I think that is just a it's just a wonderful like proclamation i feel like the resurrection of jesus yeah. the trampling of hell like all of that stuff comes through really really strongly in that prayer in the renewed ancient text prayer uh, which i really like um but i've i've come back to the daily office in the 79 book of common prayer i think is i, I think i prefer that because it's the readings are a little shorter yeah. and they follow the church here Rather than the calendar, and so um, I've 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 gone back to that in my own kind of uh, personal devotions. So, anyway, uh, one last question for you, Winfield. Um, how would you say you've kind of talked a little bit about this, but I wonder if you could just reflect on this a bit. How has the the Book of Common Prayer impacted you personally? Um, how has your own uh, de- devotional life, Christian life, spiritual life changed because of it? Yeah. Great question. I think, you know, for me coming kind of out of an evangelical kind of charismatic background, if you will, you know, I prayed, you know, all my prayers, it was me praying and it felt like I was mm-hmm. carrying everything. And it was, and I think the gift of the Book of Common Prayer for me is it's, it's, I feel like I'm praying with the church. I feel mm-hmm. like it reminds me, um, that I belong to the, to the church. 
yeah. you know, and that I'm yeah. connected to a larger body of believers, past, present, and future. Uh, I love how a lot of these churches, or a lot of the the prayers and the liturgies, are actually rooted in um, the history of the church. Um, yes. And these same prayers are being prayed by brothers and sisters around the world. Um, mm-hmm. I just love that. And that just, again, there are times where we can just feel so lonely and so alone, and somehow we're just doing it on our own. And, you know, yeah. you know evangelical individualism and, um, yeah. you know, we can kind of just get out there. And mm-hmm. for me, it was just a great gift. And that, that was the idea of the, the, the title, Our Common Prayer, is that, we're joining our voices with the church, the great yeah. communion of the saints. Yeah. And for me, it, it connected me in a way mm. that I had never felt connected before. And that's what I love about the prayer book. We carry it yeah. with us. We pray it. We pray mm. these prayers, sometimes with others, sometimes by ourselves. But we're always mm-hmm. joining our voice with the church. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well said. I, I've had, had that sense as well. Uh, of that being a gift to my own spirituality, that it's it's less just me on my own trying to like talk with God, and more now even if I am on my own praying, I have a sense yeah. of I'm praying with the church, past, present, future. Like the communion of saints is with me, uh, the church around the world is with me, um, and we're doing this together. That's really it's really well said. So, Bishop Todd. Any any final remarks? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, well, just to, to answer the question about why Winfield's been a cherished go-to friend for me, is several times uh, as he was talking, he, without saying it, um, he he gave a tip off to um, that he's also something of a missiologist. He used the word contextual a few times. Um, what I appreciate about Winfield, and I just loved it hear you just say a bit about this before we close Winfield. And this is a caricature, but you know, some people, it's sort of like mission, 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 and then, yeah, prayer book, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then it seems like there's other people, it's prayer book, prayer book, prayer book, and then mission, blah, blah, blah. And what I've appreciated about knowing you, the whatever it's been, five, six, seven years, is that you found a way to work these things together seamlessly. So it's not like mission is something and then the prayer book is something religious or something, but you found Mm -hmm. a way to seamlessly work these things together. And maybe you could just say a word about that as we close. Yeah. I think that's an important point. Thanks. The the irony is literally, I just finished a a major book on this liturgy and mission um, subtitle, something about exploring the intersection of worship and witness in a complex world. And for me, I was a church planter, and I was planting these missional churches, but there was this formative element that was missing. And oftentimes, missiologists aren't talking to liturgists, and liturgists aren't talking to missiologists. And that's really one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book. Um, you know, Pope Francis, uh, a while back, kind of gave this analogy that stuck with me of like, the Christian faith is like, requires spiritual breathing, where we you know, we, we inhale in worship and we exhale in mission. And I really, I really love that. Um, Alan Kreider uh, and, uh, and Eleanor Kreider co-wrote a book on worship and mission that was, they, they kind of build on that analogy as well. And that's where I see the worship um, 
of the beauty of the liturgical tradition, the prayer book, these prayers, it gives us prayers not only when we gather corporately, but again, individually. These prayers are actually forming us and shaping us for what? Ultimately, it's to join in God's mission. Um, you know, the you know the, the ancient mass, you know, is called the mass because it comes from the word misa, which the priest proclaims, go you are sent. And every Sunday in liturgical churches all around the world, millions of believers are sent back out into the world um, with the priestly blessings. But oftentimes we don't connect those things. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in the very nature of the liturgy and especially the sacraments that actually point us to mission, um, that we're called to join in God's mission. And we could do a whole side thing on kind of the missionality of the Eucharist. Um, mm-hmm. In it, there's justice, there's mission, there's uh, just, it, it's all there encapsulated in the liturgy. And the four, you know, I've referenced the four movements. You know, we gather in worship, we hear God's word, um, we feed at the table, and then we're sent back out on mission. Mm-hmm. And I think pastors, I think our members, we all need to be reminded of that and how to recover that integration. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. We'll look uh, forward to seeing that book come out. You said ne- not till next summer though, right? Something like that. It's it's in the editorial process, so it's kind of, it, it's out of my hands as it were. Okay. All right. <laughs> Very good. Well, we'll put uh, links to the books that we've mentioned in the show notes, as well as a link to your website um, uh, as, as well, so people can connect with you. Is there any other good way to connect with you, Winfield, if people want to ask further questions? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm, you can connect with me on social media. You know, I'm on Twitter. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm an artist. Uh, Instagram is kind of exclusively oh, yeah. for art. Um, I do commissioned pieces for churches. It's kind of oh, wow. it's kind of a fun kind of side gig that I do. That's um, fun. Yeah. But yeah, you can reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter, or okay. Facebook. Very good. We'll uh, put links to all that in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us, Winfield. It was awesome to talk to you today. Great to be here with y'all. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the C4SO podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.